Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, we do hope some of you are praying, thinking, saying yes to God. Maybe for the first time, maybe to reaffirm something in your life. Maybe it's to become a part of His family here to join in a small group or something like that. I lead a, I'm going to be leading a group uh, called Exploring Christianity. If, if that's something that you're not sure about or you want to dig into more, I uh, hope that you'll cons- consider that. Uh, God is doing some just amazing things. Uh, some of you, how many of you were here Thursday night for the Matthew West concert? How many? Wow, there was a whole bunch in the first service, not as many of y'all in this service, or or either that or you didn't have a good time. (laughs) But the place was sold out, and uh, it was was amazing, and we had incredible volunteers, and God did some amazing stuff. And and one of the things that uh, Matthew did was they made a decision, they were, they were, it was Thursday night was the concert, Friday they were kicking off a brand new album nationwide, and um, they, uh, they, announced that they were going to give all the proceeds from the album sales on Thursday night to Gateway for Harvey Relief. And so we were very, very grateful that they invested to help our community. Yeah. Well, uh, let me tell you a little about my background. I, uh, I met my wife, Susan, the very first day that I started working as a pastor in a church. Uh, it, it happened, I just moved to Tyler, Texas, up in East Texas, and it was the first Sunday in June, 1985. Her mother was teaching a class that I was going to be responsible for, so uh, after this class, she introduced me to her daughter. And I don't think it was because she was trying to set us up at all. I think she was just trying to be nice to the new young pastor. Uh, however, uh, several weeks later, we started dating about a year later, we were married, and I think she has regretted that introduction ever since. <laughs> you know, one of the special moments of our wedding, as it, I think it is for many weddings, and, and is when I placed the wedding band on her finger, and, and she placed the wedding band on my finger, and, and Susan's grandfather, a retired pastor, said to us, as, as I've said to many couples, the wedding ring is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace signifying to all the uniting of this man and this woman in holy matrimony through the church of Jesus Christ our Lord. That ring signified, it was a symbol of all the time that we had already invested with each other, spent getting to know each other, getting to trust each other, discovering a romantic attraction that matured into a deeper love and trust. It represented a commitment, a covenant, a relationship that we each made to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. We made that commitment, and here's a picture of that evening, regardless of whether things were going to work out well or not, because none of us knows when we, when we stand before that altar. But we believe that God had drawn us together and could see us through anything we faced, and he, and he has. He's seen us through kids. 
He's seen us through both of us having thyroid cancer. Don't, don't, don't get around us. I, I don't think it's supposed to be contagious, but we've both had it. Uh, her lupus and, and, and more. And we, uh, this past summer, we celebrated 31 years of marriage together. And yeah. But, but here's the thing, and, and, and this may sound a little weird. Maybe you've never even thought of this. The idea it came to me this week. But now suppose that first Sunday, I met Susan, and I happened to have in my pocket the ring. Never met her before. In fact, didn't even know she existed. But I went ahead, and I took that ring, and I placed it on her finger on that very first Sunday when we met. And, 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 and because I had that sign, I automatically assumed all the rights and privileges of marriage because I, it, I had done it. I had given the ring. And it was then my hope to make the marriage work. I know that sounds kind of weird, and, and, and maybe it's, it's not the best analogy, but, but does the act of placing a ring on a finger, a, a sign... Does, is that what means we're really married? I mean, obviously, if I had done that on that first Sunday in June, she would have thought I was completely nuts, not just mostly nuts. I mean, you know, and yet it, it did make sense on that, that other Sunday in June a year later because we had, we had developed a relationship. We were making a covenant between the two of us. See, it seems to me that the human beings have a tendency to confuse the covenant, the commitment we make to one another, and the signs of that covenant or commitment. God and the patriarch Abraham, whose life we're exploring this series, I think can teach us some things about this. So I want us to dig into that. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Or a version Bible app you can use. Or if you have neither of those, we always include uh, notes in the bulletin that you can use and, and follow along and, and take notes. And here's, here's how chapter 15 begins. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, if you were with us last week, that means this kind of follows right on top of, of the events that Brandon shared with us last week about King Melchizedek. And, and if you missed that, you can, you can catch it online. The, the language used here tells us that Abram is, is considered a prophet. In fact, the first prophet, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God will prophesy of, of Israel's time in Egypt. He will do that later, as we see in a few minutes. But, but first, he, he wants to talk to Abram about faith. So he continues in 15.1, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And, and so God is offering Abram here some assurance that he doesn't need to be afraid. Now, now if you read just that first verse, the, the initial assumption might be, don't be afraid to have this incredible encounter with the living God. There's no description of it. We don't know what the vision was like. But that would be a logical assumption. But we're going to see that there's really something more at work in Abram that God is speaking to him about. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, if you're with us a couple weeks ago in Genesis 11 and 12, we saw that Abram's wife, we were told, uh, the, the scripture is very clear up front, that she was unable to have children. And now at this point, both are clearly past the age of having children, but God had promised Abram that, that God was going to make a great nation out of Abram, which meant he had to have a lot of descendants. And Abram fears that he's going to continue to be childless and that his only heir is going to be a servant of his. So verse 4, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir. Again, there's this prophetic language, the word of the Lord came, and God promises Abram that Eliezer won't be his heir. But in fact, Abram will have a son, will have a real son to be his heir. It goes on, verse 5, And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, here in Houston, there, there's so much light pollution that if you and I received that prophecy and, and then we went out to count the, the stars, we'd only see a handful of stars at best. But if you've ever been way out in the country or been up in the mountains or, or out on the ocean somewhere, you may have seen what Abram saw, something like this. I mean, you start to look and, and, and you take a look at a corner of it or a piece of it and you start trying to count and there's more and there's more and there's more behind everything that you see and it, it keeps going and going and going. And you imagine this elderly man, older probably than anyone in this room, whose wife is, is years beyond the age of childbearing and has been unable to have a child and here he is having this vision from God. And in the midst of this vision, God draws Abraham outside his tent to, to look up at the night sky, not to see what you and I might see, a handful of stars, but untold thousands. It seems crazy. Could Abram and Sarai have children? I mean, how in the world... There's nothing, in, even in modern medical science, that would tell us how this could happen. Yet something beyond logic and information stirred in Abram. And verse 6, to me, is, is, is perhaps one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament. In fact, the truth of the matter is, verse 6 it sort of gives the Apostle Paul in the New Testament the grounds for, for much of his writings in, in Romans and Galatians and, and the whole understanding of the Christian faith. Because it says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abram believed. Abram trusted in spite of everything that had happened, in, in, in spite of the fact that Sarai wasn't pregnant, in spite of the fact that there was no proof whatsoever. I mean, he had promised him land. He was in a land, but it wasn't his yet. He had promised him descendants and a nation, and he's an old man. But God looked into the heart of Abram, and in spite of everything outward, he saw that Abram believed. 
The Bible tells us in Hebrews in the New Testament, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that we haven't experienced yet, that aren't real in our lives at this moment. Faith is an attitude. It's a choice. It's it's an orientation in life. And the result was that the faith of Abram was counted or judged or credited to him to be righteousness. He didn't earn righteousness. He wasn't saying, Abram, you have been such a good guy. You've hung in there with me that I'm going to do this for you as a, as a, as, as a favor. It, it, it wasn't because, Abram, you have done good things. It was a gift simply because he chose to believe. In spite of what he saw, in spite of the the reality of the world around him, because of his faith, and only then could he enter into a covenant, a relationship with God. God's the the creator, the the sustainer of all life. And when we break that connection to him through our sins and lose that that righteousness, that right standing with him, we cut ourselves off from the richness he offers us in how we live our lives day to day, a, a sense of hope, a sense of peace, a sense of joy, as well as eternity. And, and the word righteous in the Bible, it, it's, an, it's an interesting word because it can be used in a couple of different related ways. It can be thought of as a, the state of right relationship with God, which comes to us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. As, as Tom mentioned to me this morning, it's a, what some call positional righteousness. It's, it's something uh, attached to us, given to us. And, and then the second part, or the second way it's used as the is as the acts of right living, of being righteous, of trying to live righteously that flow from the right relationship with God or the experience of that position. So there's, there's the state and there is the actions. And the mistake that, you, the mistake that humans make is to confuse the two, to, to think that right actions will even of themselves lead to the right relationship with God. That if I follow the rules, if I do what God wants, if if I make him happy, he will be pleased, and then I will be accorded the state of righteousness. But that's not what Scripture says. And and the problem is, if we go that other way, then, then righteousness is something I can cause to happen because I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to earn his favor. I'm trying to appease him. I can do it myself. But God shows us here that Abram was counted as being righteous by his faith, by just, by just believing God. Not through any actions, not through any deeds, not through he was a good guy, not because he had come a long way, but simply because of faith. Having the right state or position of relationship, of trusting God, believing rightly, is going to lead, if, if we really get in our, put ourselves in that place, will we'll lead to right actions as a sign or a mark of that right faith. But right actions don't necessarily lead or indicate the right state of a relationship. It's possible. In fact, 
I would argue it's easy. In fact, I would tell you it's been, a, it's been something I, I, I've done in my own life for people to do the right things, the right actions for the, to, to look like they're in the right state of relationship, the right faith, and yet do it for self-serving reasons. I can do the right things, in other words, for the wrong reasons. I can look Christian and still not be. I can do it for self-serving purposes. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's why faith, not, not actions, not works, has always been what's most important to God, to see our hearts, to see in which way are we focused, and what am I trying to do? Not go through some ritual or some act and somehow be God indebted, God indebted to us for doing that. And if you think about it, it comes to us, I mean, I think we understand this because we know if someone does something nice to us, we can usually tell, okay, are they being nice to me because it's a part of their nature, because they, they really do care? Or are they being nice to me because they want something? They want something, out, they want something for me. They're, they're doing it for their own sake. And most of us, most of the time, can tell that. God knew the state of Abram's heart and that then defined how he lived his life. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 4, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's what we've been doing. We come together to give glory to God. Why do we give glory to God? To grow in faith, to trust, to, to experience him together. And it goes on to say that in 21, fully convinced, talking about Abram, that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Here's the New Testament quoting the Old Testament to show us that everything about what we learn in the Old Testament is grounded in what has already happened here in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, the Jews came to believe that the sons of Abram could be born into the faith, that they, they could go through certain rituals and be the people of faith, that they could inherit the right to be saved because they just were. And the Apostle Paul turns it all around. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians saying, those of faith, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith, not genetics. The righteousness credit to Abram came by faith, and it is that same faith, not, not birthright, not genetics, not even doing the right things or signs that is marked and proven who are the true ancestors of Abraham, and therefore saved. And this was the, the hope that the Apostle Paul held out to the, to the Gentiles, in other words, to the non-Jews, which is most of us, that, that we too could be saved. In fact, we could be true children of Abraham over those born into the family line because what counts is not genetics. 
or what somebody did, but faith. And it's that faith, that faith behind our actions then that matters, that gives then ultimate meaning to our actions rather than our actions in and of themselves being enough, being sufficient. So because of his faith, the Bible tells us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that righteousness was counted to Abram. And then as a result of him having this faith, he therefore obeyed God. He wanted to obey God. He loved God. He cared about God. He sought to do God's will. Later in, in, in Hebrews, it says, by faith, then, Abraham obeyed. That's what faith does. Not that obedience in and of itself gains me that state, but if I am in that state, that positional righteousness that is a gift to, of God's through Jesus Christ that I can receive, then I want to live that out. It's, and there will be acts of righteousness, good works, like we've been doing through Hurricane Harvey or all kinds of things like that. Good deeds or, or, or works don't earn us salvation, but if we're saved by grace through faith, we will do good works as the sign of our salvation. As James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, faith was completed by Abraham's works. Jesus himself said, we could, you, you, you will know a tree by its fruit. In other words, what you plant comes to, to bear fruit. And, and, and an apple tree won't bear an orange. And, and a non-believer can't ultimately yield the fruit that a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ can build. And faith produces good works, though those works themselves aren't the salvation. They don't lead to salvation, but they help us grow in it. However, even though Abram believes, it's, it's not clear to him how God's promises are going to be fulfilled. So God offers him a sign, verse 9. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, uh, Abram uses animals that Moses, who wrote this, will later tell us are acceptable as sacrifices. So the kind of pre, is a precursor or prefiguring those future sacrifices that we'll read after the Exodus. But, but God first gives Abram a prophecy in verses 13 to 16 about how his ancestors are going to be enslaved in the land of Egypt, but then they're going to leave and they'll carry out the wealth of all those. Uh, and, and then he gives him a supernatural sign. Verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And here, here is the formal covenant. Here is God saying, Here is what I am going to do. And the, and the Hebrew language here is that literally God cut a covenant with Abram, that there was blood shed for the sake of the covenant. But what's even more interestingly interesting is that that the flaming, the fire pot or the flaming torch that passes through the pieces was just representative of God. In, in ancient 
societies like this, scholars tell us that it was often the case that when two people were making a covenant, both of them would walk through between the pieces. So that saying, essentially, if either one of us fails to fulfill our part of the covenant, these dead animals being cut in half is what's going to happen to us. But God did not make Abram walk between the pieces. God himself only walked between the pieces to say, in essence, I am so serious about this that if I do not remain faithful to you and to your descendants, whom we know to be people of the faith, not by the bloodline, you and me who are in here and who have made a decision to trust Jesus Christ, that, that God says, I, I would cut myself in half. That's what would happen. He is that serious about his promise to Abram that comes to all of us today. It's just as true today as it was back then. He tells Abram, you will have more descendants can be counted than stars in the sky or grains of sea in the sand, and you will have land. Now, I'm going to jump to chapter 17, skip chapter 16, and 13 years have passed. Abram, in chapter 16, finally has a son. His name is Ishmael. But he doesn't come through his wife, Sarah, but through, Sarai, but through a handmaiden, Hagar. And we'll talk about that uh, in, in, in the future. But the question is, okay, now all of a sudden he has a, a, a child. Is Ishmael the fulfillment of God's covenant and promise to Abram? Once again, the Lord appears to Abram. And affirms this covenant and how it would occur. So we're in chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now that Abram is in this covenant with God and has been counted as righteousness, we saw that in chapter 15, now God tells him, you are to walk before me blameless. He, in other words, you are to live your life for me, trying to live a life, a godly life for me, before me every day in awareness of this relationship we have, in awareness of this covenant I have made with you, that this is not simply a one-time decision that you made back then that you can just say, okay, I made it back then so it doesn't really affect how I go ahead and live my life. I can do whatever I want because God, God has made me his child and he'll forgive me. He has to forgive me for whatever I've done. God intends to, to, sh to show that, that he wants to impact Abram's life every single day. This relationship is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing lifestyle. If we live daily in awareness of God's presence with us through Jesus Christ, through the power of his spirit living in us, it should affect how we live every moment. It should make a difference that when I'm confronted with whether or not to be nice to someone, it's not about getting in trouble or not, but it's because Christ is in me and his love flows out to me and I want to seek to love my neighbor. And if I don't, it's because I've sinned. If we live daily in that awareness, he will grow us and transform us. And to signify this, this change in relationship, God offers Abram a sign Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And, and you know, today, most of us, we may have looked up and we named our kids, we may, or our, even ourselves, we may know kind of what the name means, but it really doesn't carry a lot of significance. But in biblical times, they were very significant. They revealed truths about a person. And so God changes Abram's name from Abram, which means a great father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations, of many peoples. And in fact, when we commit our life to Christ, the same thing happens to us. Because what do we, are, what do we call ourselves? What did the early church come to start calling us? We see it in, in the book of Acts. We became to be called Christians. And you know what a Christian is? The name Christian means a little Christ. A little Christ. In other words, you and I are called to live as little Christ every day. Throughout our day, wherever we are, we're not a Christian if we say, I made that decision a long time ago, but I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. I don't care, or I'm going to trust just forgiveness. Then you're not living as a little Christ. That's not what it means to be a Christian. So God affirms all that's going on here through his covenant with Abraham. He tells him, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God promises this everlasting covenant. In other words, a covenant that will never end. He made it. He walked it through. He cut the covenant. He walked through it. And he said, no matter what, what you people do, no matter what you do, Abram, no matter what your ancestors do who come to you by faith, no matter what you do, I will remain faithful to this covenant. I will continue to love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will always be my beloved. And it will never end. And his blessings to the world, he intends to be channeled through his true children of Abraham. And as we see in the New Testament, it's not the bloodline, it's by faith. God is telling Abraham, he's telling us that we can always, we will always be able to trust God's promises. Everything he says to us. And therefore we can live by faith, even if it has not come to pass, just as Abram had not yet had the child. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are loved to love. It's not for me, it's through me for the sake of others. And so this eternal everlasting covenant was so important. And, and it even tells us here, it was an everlasting covenant and an everlasting possession, which would Tell us why the nation of Israel today believes it has an inherent right to the land it's on. Because the one true God said this will be an everlasting possession. In verse 10 it says, Then this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision wasn't the covenant. It wasn't that you had to do this sign in order to enter into the covenant. The covenant already existed. The, the sign of the covenant came afterwards. It already was there. 
By the time of Jesus, the Jews would have turned the sign that, that comes after the making of the covenant, circumcision in that, their case, into the thing that made the covenant. They, they said, if you're, if you're not circumcised, you're not a part of the faith. You're not a part of the people. You're not a part of the salvation of God. And so if you're a Gentile, you're outside of that, and you have to, you have to first be circumcised to come into the faith. Thankfully for many of us, at the Jerusalem Council of the early church around 50 A.D., and you can read about it in Acts chapter 15, the early church leaders since God was leading that, that Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus didn't have to first become Jews and be circumcised because then they were turning the sign into a work. You had to do this in order to be saved, to, in order to claim God's salvation. When all the way back to the time of Abraham, it was always clear that it had always been a matter of God's grace accepted through our faith. In the same way, a wedding ring doesn't make the marriage. If I would put that on my wife's finger on that first Sunday in June, it would not mean we were really married because there was no relationship. There was no commitment to each other. It was just a stupid thing to do. The relationship, when I did put, when I did put the ring on our finger, the relationship, the covenant, the, the commitment were already existing. And the ring only symbolized that. And the truth of the matter is, a person can wear the ring and not remain faithful to the covenant or not mean it. And some who go by the name of Christian today do the same thing. Claiming or even fooling themselves at the signs of Christianity. Yes, I, I grew up in the church Yes, I was baptized. Yes, I, I joined a church. I went through the rites of my church at some point, and I, and I did all the things I was supposed to do. Makes me a Christian. That somehow it's proof that they are followers. But that's not what Scripture says. That's never what it has been about. And we're fooling ourselves if we believe we're a part of the everlasting covenant because we've done the signs without first making a commitment to the relationship. Today, baptism does not confer on you salvation. It is a sign of the relationship and covenant that already exists, that that reflect that you have made this decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's why when we talk about baptism with folks, we remind them that it is a sign that they've chosen not only to make Jesus Savior, which is a, a point we can look at in, in, our, in our past or, or even today to say, here's a decision I've made to, to realize that I cannot save myself and I am dependent on you, Jesus, to save me. But at the same time, we say, it's also to make him Lord. In other words, I have trusted what he did in the past and I am going to continue trusting him and I'm going to continue living for him and obeying him from this day forward because he is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. A lot of people get baptized and just and essentially say he's my Savior and I'm going to set that on the shelf and I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. And we've turned the sign into the covenant. And God calls us 
to live for him because he's looking at the state of our heart. Am I, am I abusing the sign to get ahead on my own? Or am I agreeing to the sign because it is my heart? And God knows. I, I can't always tell. We can't, in fact, we can't know that for sure about anyone else. But God always knows. And yet, if it is a decision you have made to trust him, to live by faith, you, don't, you, you, you do need to be baptized as a sign of God's grace and that commitment. Jesus said to do this, go and baptize them. And so we get baptized as, as a way to obey, as a response of obedience, and we're, that's why we're offering baptisms this afternoon at 5 o'clock so that you can do that. And we've got a, a class right after this service down in the Life Center. If you have questions about that or you want to investigate it or you want to find out how, how to be prepared for that. Now, stay with me right at the end. God offers Abraham and his family one more sign. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for decades since God first made his promise to see that promise fulfilled, to give them an, uh, the heir that God always intended. And now God tells them it will happen. It is going to happen within the year. God is faithful to do all he says, even when it seems impossible, even when we're thinking there's no way to get through this. How, how could living as a Christian in this instance help me? How could living with integrity in my workplace, how could living, loving my neighbor who is, who is harsh or, or, or forgiving someone that doesn't want to be forgiven, how could that make a difference? We make that decision by faith. And choose to live that way by faith, believing that God knows what is best. And it is by faith that we see God working. And, and we'll see him do, do this as we continue through this, this, these passages. But today God shows us that he is trustworthy. He is worthy of, of a decision of faith. And maybe that's something some of you do need to do today. As Tiffany said earlier, that it's time to trust him. Not just lip service. You know, some people can go through the rituals but have never really welcomed him in faith. And maybe that's what you need to do today. Or maybe you've gotten caught up in trusting the sign and you've stopped trusting the giver of the sign. And today you need to go back to God's covenant to know he has never given up on you. He loves you today as much as he has ever loved you. He will never stop. He continues to offer you the forgiveness of your sins and he will see you through no matter what goes on in your life because he loves you. And we respond to that in faith and gratitude. So as we've been doing in this series, right here, right now, a couple of choices on the back. Maybe for some of you today, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. But maybe for most of us, or many of us, it's I reaffirm my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I will live for him today and every day. Not just sometime in the past, but this will become the state of my heart that I will seek to live out. Remember the wedding ring, the sign of the marriage, doesn't come 
before the relationship and covenant. Signs of faith are, are just that. They're signs of what has already happened and not ways to get God to love us and accept us. Whether it was circumcision back then or good deeds today, don't get the cart before the horse. Don't think I have to do certain things or I have to get my life right before I can go to him. It starts by believing what he has said by faith and let him change your heart. And out of that, your life can be changed and how you live can be different. God has already promised this to you and me. To every, in fact, everyone. He's promised it. But only those who accept it, receive it and live it. And those are the ones that are the people of the covenant that he uses to make a difference in this world today. That's what will change this world. Not lip service, not signs, but faithful action because God has changed our hearts. If you want to learn more about that, our prayer team will be down here. They'd love to talk to you. If you want to continue growing by getting involved with a group, you can go out there and find out about that or sign up online. This is the last, really kind of the last week to do that. And if you want to be baptized or at least learn about it, go down this way to our Life Center and they'll talk to you about that in just a couple of minutes. And if you're new here today, uh, I'd love to meet you. I'll be out here with some friends and we'd love to say, say hello to you today and, and, and welcome you to, to vis visiting our church. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you so much that you love every one of us. And, and no matter what we've done, good or bad, it is by faith that we are saved. Because you will forgive. Because all of us stand in the need of that forgiveness. So today, Father, maybe for some of us it's time to start living by faith. To trust you. And for some of us it's time to get back to trusting you. To say, I've, I've wandered off. I've, I've tried to just depend on what happened a long time ago. Versus living each day for you fully. Father, help us to know you as Savior and as Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you tonight and certainly next week.